you would uh, grab your Bible and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning and turn to Romans chapter 8. As Pastor Bruce continues in his series on triumphant living, what the gospel can do for us. And we'll read uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. As Pastor Bruce preaches this morning on life in the flesh, what the gospel has to say about our lives, and we can pick up the text in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Father, we come to you this morning and thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son who came to die. The there might be no condemnation. I pray that we would open our hearts and minds to hear the word that you would have for us this morning. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I am so glad you guys are here this morning. I'm glad you've taken time to come and be a part of this worship service because I have some great news for everyone here today. And you're wondering, well, don't hold it in. Let us know what it is. Tell us. Well, here's the great news. The gospel is for defeated people. And the gospel is for successful people. In fact, it's for everyone in between. It's for every one of us here this morning. Let me explain. God gives His Spirit to replace our defeat with His power. And God gives His Spirit to successful people to save them from their success. As we learned last Sunday, the best that we can do is never good enough. It's never good enough. Because we can never measure to the standard of God's law and God's holiness. And that's why life changed that we talked about last Sunday. That's why it comes through the grace of God and not by the law of God. Because the law, all it can do is condemn you. It's powerless to save you. It's powerless to change you. And so God's Spirit replaces the best that we can ever do on our own, in our flesh, with the best that God can do for us. And that's good news for both defeated people as well as successful people. And according to Romans 8, Verse 4, God sent His Son for us, and God gives us His Spirit so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled now in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit. In other words, we could say it like this, God saves you to change you. He sets us free from the condemnation of our sins that we saw in verse 1 in Christ to live a changed life in His Spirit that He gives to us. So, 
I would suggest, and my exhortation is to everyone here this morning, don't limit the power of the gospel in your life. Don't put the gospel in a box. And what I mean by that is, the gospel is not only the power of God for salvation, Paul tells us that back in Romans chapter 1, so the gospel is not just for the for salvation, is not only the power of God for our salvation, but it's the power of God for our sanctification, for transformation, for life change, and, as we'll see later in this very same chapter, for our glorification. The gospel is for all of that. That's what the gospel can do for you. So question, what does that look like? What does this kind of life change look like? And how, then, is it accomplished? Well, that's what Paul begins to explain here in this next section of verses. Verses 5 through 11. And the first thing that Paul tells us is that there are only two groups of people in this world that represent two different mindsets, which lead to two different lifestyles, which ultimately results in two different destinies. Now, every one of us, all of humanity, enters into the first group. We begin in the first group by virtue of our physical birth. All you have to do is be born. Don't have to do a lot, right? You had nothing to do with your physical birth. Presto, you're born. There's a lot more to it than that, but you get the idea. We're just automatically born into this first group. But we don't enter into the second group unless we are born again. We have to have spiritual change. We, there has to be a spiritual birth for us to enter into the second group. So what are these two groups? And more importantly, here's the question I want you to consider. Which group are you in this morning? Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen if it's not there already. Two distinct groups of people. Those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit. That is the terminology that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 8. You see this word over and over again. The two key words here are flesh and the spirit. You're either living life in the flesh or you're either living life in the spirit. And according to Romans 8, 5, one way to live is according to the flesh and the other way to live is according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh, we could say it like this, they are outside of Christ. We would know them, we would use the words, they're unbelievers, they're unsaved, they're unredeemed. Those living according to the Spirit, or actually just according to the Spirit, are in Christ. We would, we would use words like they're saved, they're born again, they are redeemed by Christ. And the contrast that Paul is setting forth here for us is essentially between a life that is dominated by the flesh and a life that is controlled by the Spirit. And so that is the two groups. That is the contrast and comparison that Paul is making for us here in verses 5 through 11. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that from God's perspective here, there are only two groups of people in this world. There's not a gazillion types of people. There's only two. And you're either in one or the other. 
Those are the only two options from God's perspective. Now, we may devise all kinds of ways to distinguish people. And in our culture, we have all kinds of ways of doing that. You know, we have you know, liberals and conservatives. There's rich and there's poor. There's middle class, upper class. There's the cool and the uncool. There's Apple users and Android users. All right, don't give your opinion on that. There's Missouri fans and there's Kansas fans and a few K-State fans sprinkled in and so forth. We have all kinds of ways in which we try to devise and distinguish people. But, and we even mix and max all these to, to kind of get a composite profile of, of this type of person and that type of person. And marketers do a great job of doing this to try to sell you things. They want to get a profile of who you are, what your interests are, what your tastes are. But God, God kind of peels away all that surface appearance, revealing only two groups of people in the world, those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit. Now, some of us, we might allow for three categories of people, but Paul here only allows for two. In fact, sometimes we tend to think in terms of, well, there's non-Christians, and then there's ordinary Christians, but then you've got this third group of super-Christians. Unfortunately, though, too many Christians settle into that second category. Just ordinary Christians, but not much different from decent non-Christians. Understand here, in this section of Scripture, in Romans 8 here, Paul is not contrasting two types of Christians here. He is contrasting people based on their spiritual condition. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. You are either living under the condemnation of your sin or you are set free from the condemnation of your sins. And from God's perspective, there are distinct differences fundamental differences between these two groups of people. So here's the key question that I want us to answer this morning. The question I want you to consider there in the pew. How do you tell the difference between the two? How do you distinguish those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit? This morning, I want us to focus on this first group, those who are according to the flesh. Life in the flesh. What does it look like? Next Sunday, we'll focus on those in the spirit. Life in the spirit. So life in the flesh, look at it. Number one, those according to the flesh are marked by three defining characteristics. Paul is describing the person who is according to the flesh, but what does this mean when he uses this phrase? While the term flesh can refer to the physical bodies, in fact, flesh, we tend to think of you know, our flesh on our bones. While that term can refer to our physical bodies, I think Paul seems to have viewed the term here in contrast with the spirit. In other words, the person who is, quote, in the flesh is not indwelt by the spirit of God. That is, he's not born again by the spirit. And therefore, he's still living according to his flesh, or his sin nature. This word according, it's an interesting word. It's the idea of, of being under something. Being under something else, which means everyone is born according to the flesh. We are born, in other words, 
under the domination and power of our sin nature, which we inherited from Adam. And this domination of the flesh, it is continuous in how Paul states it here. In other words, we are born in sin, we exist in sin, we live in sin, and we go on living in sin until, and only until, God graciously intervenes and we are miraculously born again by the Spirit. And apart from that miracle, apart from what the Gospel can do for you by the miracle of the new birth, let me tell you, we will continually to live according to the flesh. So how does this life show itself now? Well, Paul gives us some defining marks of how this life shows itself out. There's three of them in particular. And then there's a consequence from it all that we'll see. Number one, the first defining mark is they set their minds on the things of the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Look what Paul writes again in verse 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? You know, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, that phrase, set their minds on, it means it's the, the deliberate action of your mind on certain things. And the term mind means more than just your intellect. Paul's talking about your mindset. He's talking about your whole mentality. It includes your infections, your emotions, the ambitions of your heart, the desires of your heart, and what you dwell upon. In other words, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything else? What's, what's your mindset on? So what are the things of the flesh? Well, the danger here is for us to limit the things of the flesh just to sinful pleasures or to limit this things of the flesh phrase to, to just the sins that belong to the body. We hear the word flesh and what do we think about? We typically think, we typically think about physical sins that we commit with our bodies. And, and while this is certainly included, it's much more comprehensive than that. So what then does the flesh mean? Well, it, in a word, it means worldly-mindedness. In other words, it includes everything which is opposed to the mind and the life of the Holy Spirit. Another way of putting it is that the things of the flesh means every aspect of life without God. Now again, here's the danger for us, is to limit this. We, the danger here is to think that this description marks only the most obvious sinners, the worst sinners that we see and we know or we hear about. But it also includes very good moral religious people, people whom the world would describe as very noble in their life. You see, to set your mind on the things of the flesh includes things like political interest without God. Social interest without God. Cultural interest without God. A career interest without God. An academic interest without God. An athletic interest without God. Even a Facebook interest 
without God. You see, in other words, God is kind of outside of it all. He's on the outside looking in, and he's not invited in. That's the idea here. He's excluded from it, and there's nothing spiritual about it. Here's what you've got to understand. The mind that is set on the flesh can be either the most outrageous sinner or the Mr. Good Guy who pays his bills on time, volunteers at the homeless shelter, and drives a hybrid. What they all have in common is the mindset of the flesh. One may be outlandish in nature. The other may be very virtuous in nature. Their ethics may be different from each other, and they may even fight each other in the cultural wars. And they may be on opposing teams, so to speak, but they're still playing the same game. Self-focus. Self-justification. Self-exaltation. Self-assurance. Self-importance. It's obvious that the party-hard lifestyle is of the flesh. But what isn't so obvious is that the moral, good, religious person, the civic-minded lifestyle, is also of the flesh. You say, well, why? How can that be? Because the good moral person is as devoid of the Spirit of God as the most obvious sinner. One is outside of Christ as much as the other is. You see, the only difference between an obvious sinner and a good moral person is purely a superficial one. It's just on the outside. It's just what we observe but in their inner beings, in their hearts, there is not the slightest difference between them. They are both setting their minds on the things of the flesh. In all their thinking, in all their interests, in all their pursuits, it is without God. God is on the outside looking in. That is the concept here. That's the idea. That is one of the defining marks of those who are according to the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, and it is without God. Number two, and the reason for this is because they are hostile to God in their hearts. Paul gets to the heart of the problem in verse 7 when he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see, the mind set on the flesh hates God. Whoa, that's hard, isn't it? hates God, and resents the truth of God. In fact, resents the laws of God, the commandments of God. In other words, resents God's word. The flesh may not be consciously hostile to God. In fact, they may never even verbalize, I hate God. Most of the time, it never happens that way. The flesh may even think it loves God. The problem is the flesh loves God on its own terms of how they fashion God on their own terms, instead of on God's terms, instead of how the Bible reveals God. Why? Because the mind that is set on the flesh is all about self, and it arrogantly cries out, I am God. What I want is what I want, and I don't care what God wants. What I think is what I think, and I don't care what God thinks. How I live is how I live, and I don't care how God tells me to live. Why? Because it's all about me. So here's a test. Are you ready? In your thinking, when your thinking comes into conflict with what God says in his word, who wins? You or God's word? 
in your choices, when your choosing comes into conflict with what God says in His Word. Who wins? You or God? In your desires, in your ambitions, in your interests, when they come into conflict with God, who wins? It's often at the crisis points in life that we really begin to show our true colors, who we really are. When our thinking, when our choosing, when our desires come into conflict with God's Word, sometimes we show that I am God. And other times, or other people may show that God is my God. Now that's not to say that true Christians don't stumble. That's not to say that true Christians don't fall in some very spectacular ways. You know what I'm saying? Remember Peter? Good old Peter? Yeah, the one who denied his Lord, but he did it bitterly, and he repented of it, and it was not characteristic of his life. It was not his characteristic to deny his Lord. In fact, one day he would die for his Lord. And so, yes, true believers do stumble and fall into sin in some spectacular ways, but it's not characteristic of their lives. So ask yourself this question. In, when my thinking, when my choosing, when my desires come into conflict with God, who wins? Listen, if I win, then no matter how moral or how good or how religious I am, I am hostile to God in my heart because I'm choosing self over him. I'm choosing my wants over his word. The third characteristic is they cannot please God with their lives. Based on the first two characteristics, Paul concludes in Romans 8, verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is tragic. Because God created us for what purpose? To please Him. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So if we cannot please God with our lives, then in essence we have forfeited the main reason for our very existence here on this earth. Do you realize the implications of that? That means each day we live according to the flesh, it is only because of God's mercy. Now, don't miss what Paul says at the end of verse 7 and again at the end of verse 8. Paul emphatically states two times here that those according to the flesh cannot do what? Cannot submit to his laws and they cannot please him with their lives. In other words, Paul is telling us that those according to the flesh not only hate God and don't submit to God, but they cannot desire to love God, and they cannot desire to obey Him. And they can't choose to do so because they are totally incapable of any spiritual effort on their part. As Sinclair Ferguson writes in his book, In Christ Alone, 
we are not naturally capable of loving God for himself. Indeed, we hate him. That is the very idea of the word that Paul uses, enmity. Hostility. In other words, being hostile and rebellious toward God is as natural to us as breathing. In fact, it is the air we breathe the moment we are born physically. And it cannot change until we are born again spiritually. So when we come out of the womb, the air we breathe is hostility to God. The air we breathe is, I cannot please God with my life. I cannot submit to Him. I cannot obey Him because there's nothing good within me. I'm incapable of it. That is the spiritual condition we are born in by our physical birth. Understand, the crisis in your life today is not the economy. It's not the health care. It's not your job market or the job search. It's the issue is hostility to God versus submission to God. It's pleasing self versus pleasing God. And apart from the Spirit changing your heart, you will remain angry and hostile and rebellious toward God. Apart from God graciously intervening in your life, you will always shrink from God and resent God in order to please self. And that's why those who are according to the flesh are oftentimes so unhappy and so unfulfilled. Their mindset, the mindset of the flesh, keeps us from the love of God. And we desperately need God to save our hostile hearts by loving our hostile hearts to the point of repenting of our sin and submitting to God in His Word. We desperately need that in our lives. So those according to the flesh are marked by these three defining characteristics. And if nothing changes, if, if God doesn't intervene by His grace in our lives, if nothing changes to alter our spiritual condition, then here's the consequence. Those according to the flesh are marked by one defining consequence. And Paul tells us what that is in verse 8 when he says, for to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. In other words, life in the flesh is death. This death that Paul's talking about is a present state of spiritual death, which is the absence in opposite of spiritual life. You see, to be without God, to be outside of Christ in living in the flesh is to be dead spiritually. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's describing our spiritual condition before Christ, before God intervened graciously in our, to our lives. In other words, those according to the flesh, we could say it like this. They are like zombies on the TV series The Walking Dead. I knew this group over here would appreciate that. 
We may be alive physically. You may be existing in the flesh, but spiritually, Paul says, you are a dead man walking. And if you die physically in this spiritual state, you will be shut out from the life of God for all eternity in what the Bible refers to as a place of judgment in hell. Now the irony here is that people who live according to the flesh don't just wake up in the morning and say, oh gee, let me see how I can destroy my life today. They don't consciously say to themselves, oh, I think I'll choose something that will just ruin my life. I think I'll follow a desire that will lead me to my destruction. Oh, they may choose a path that looks good to them. But Proverbs 14.12 reminds us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You see, Paul wants us to know that any time that we live according to the flesh, we are destroying ourselves, and you are setting yourself up for God's final judgment. As Pastor John Piper says, hostility to God is suicide of the worst kind. What he is saying is that there is no greater tragedy in life than to live without God and then to die without God. Oh, how we desperately need a divine intervention of grace to change the terrible condition that we are born into. This is why Jesus comes to this Pharisee, the, one of the good guys in this world, one who tried to live according to the law, one who on the outside and from all appearances from the outside, we would say, man, that is an upstanding guy. He's a Pharisee. He's a good moral religious dude. And Jesus yet comes to him and says, listen, it ain't good enough. you got to be born again. You must be born again. Something has to change within you. Unless you are born again by the Spirit, unless our hearts are changed by God, we will continue to live according to the flesh, and we will be marked by a mind that set, is set on the things of the flesh. We will be marked by a heart that is hostile to God. We will be marked by a life that cannot please God. And Paul says the consequence of that life in the flesh is death, period. But there's good news, amen? Good news for those in the flesh here this morning. There is good news for defeated people. There is good news for successful people living in the flesh. And here's the good news of what the gospel can do for you. Jesus died so that you can have new life in the Spirit. And you must have that new life or you will die. Now what Paul is telling us in these verses and what the gospel declares is, is a challenge. It is a direct challenge to our self-sufficiency. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. In these verses here, what God is doing for us, He is warning us that all attempts at self-justification will inevitably end in failure and eternal death. Here's what I mean by that. Listen to me carefully. There is absolutely nothing that you can do for yourself to get this new life that Jesus was referring to 
when he had a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus must do what is necessary for you to have new life. That's what we learned last Sunday. God sent his son in verse 4 or verse 3 to do what the law could not do so that Jesus would die on the cross and condemn sin in the flesh. Jesus had to do what is necessary. And now, get this, the Holy Spirit must bring you to this new life. We have nothing to bring to the table except what? All we bring is ourselves and our sinfulness and our guilt. And even, get this, as you remember last Sunday, even our acts of goodness, or as one commentator said, is nothing but horrible goodness. In other words, we are born spiritually dead, and that means there's only one possible way of salvation. It must come from outside of ourselves. We must be born again. We must be made alive in Christ by the Spirit of Christ. And that's what the Gospel can do for you. That's the good news here that Paul's talking about. So how then does anyone become a believer in Christ? This is amazing. Get this. Look at it. Only by God's grace are we saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We see God's action. His action of grace back in Romans 8 verse 2 when it says for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death I have not done this man this is has this has been done to me it's God's action that has set me free it's not my action Paul says the same thing later on in Ephesians about God's grace in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This is in your notes. Look at it. Look at what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is all of your own doing. Is that what it says? No. He says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works in reference to us, not a result of your works. Why? So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Get this. Why are we saved? Why, why does Paul write, you have been, by grace you've been saved through faith? We're his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, God saves us to change us. Paul states it right here again. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk Paul loves that word, walk. Walk in them. Let there be no misunderstanding here this morning. Let there be no misunderstanding among us. We can do nothing to save ourselves. It is all of God. And let us thank God that it is so. Because it is all of God. Do you know what that means about our salvation? It means it is certain, it is safe, it is secure. And Paul's going to get to that later on in this chapter. We are not just believers in Christ. We have been a made, we've been made alive by God. We are born again by the Spirit. We are now set free in Christ. And we owe it all to God's grace intervening in our lives by His Son and His Spirit. 
So, as we now come, as we conclude this service, and we come to the Lord's table and participate in communion, man, let me encourage you to come with surrendered hearts. Hearts that are, are full of gratitude for what God has done for you. Hearts that are full of joy because of what the gospel has done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed. And before we participate in communion, I want to ask you to consider your life for a moment in light of God's word, in light of what Paul tells us here. And so let me ask you, are you living in the flesh this morning? Is your life marked by these three characteristics of those according to the flesh? Listen, if you're in the flesh, but perhaps God is moving in your heart. He's speaking to you. His Spirit is convicting you that your life needs to change and you need to be born again. And if that is true of you here this morning, then let me encourage you to run to Jesus. Run to Him now and cry out to Him in prayer, Jesus, save me, forgive me, and change me. Repent of your sin and trust what Jesus did on the cross to set you free from the condemnation of your sin. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And all of us, whether we're in the flesh or in the spirit, all of us need the mind of Christ, our Savior. And if we are in the spirit, our minds are set on the things of the spirit, then we ask you to make our minds to be more like Christ. But if we are in the flesh and our minds are set on us, then Lord God, we ask that you would give us a new mind, a new heart that is focused on you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The praise team is going to sing, and as they do, will you respond right where you're seated? Will you respond to what Paul is telling us here in this word?